one of the things in the American economy right now that's going gangbusters in terms of uh, increased market is bourbon. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Hello. <laughs> yes. Well, I, um, Welcome to the 457 SEO, a place for stories, information, and observations about Southeastern Ohio, presented by WOUB News. I'm Allison Hunter. I'm Susan Tebbin. I'm Atish Baidya. And I'm Aaron Payne. In this episode, you'll hear from some of the people who could lose out on buying healthy and locally grown food just because they might get plowed by federal budget cuts. But first, when I say bourbon barrels and energy crackers and medical marijuana and hardwoods, the first thing that should come to mind is economic growth in the 457 SEO. In this episode, we're talking with one man who's living out his mission to retain, expand, and attract jobs in rural areas. Details on this area's competitive advantage in the marketplace in just a moment. Appalachian Partnership for Economic Growth is, according to its website, the nonprofit organization that partners with several initiatives designed to create jobs and advance the region's economy. And it's this area spoke in the Jobs Ohio wheel, a Governor Kasich initiative that has shouldered its share of criticism, but we're not here for any of that. We're here to learn more about how APEG is working to get Southeast Ohio the jobs it needs. And joining us right now is John Molinaro, CEO of the Appalachian Partnership for Economic Growth. Welcome to the 457 SEO, John. Well, thank you very much, Allison. I appreciate being here. Before we get into it, I do have to ask, okay, Minnesota, D.C., Southeast Ohio? I'm originally from Pittsburgh. I'm Appalachian by birth, although most people in Pittsburgh wouldn't admit that. <laughs> and um, it's, um, you know, it's a region that's, uh, you know, dear to my heart. Really what I am is a rural economic development guy. That's what I've been doing my whole career. Uh, that's what I did in um, Minnesota for 27 years. Um, that led the Aspen Institute to ask me if I'd join them as co-director of a unit that helped uh, communities and regions around the country, particularly rural areas and very small urban areas, um, do better with their economic development and uh, to come and join them and work around the country on that. And so in for about six and a half years, I had the opportunity to work in 35 states, um, helping local groups on the ground figure out how they could do better, and uh, really in ways that would make a difference to the people at the bottom end of the economic spectrum. APEG is the first region-wide economic development organization that's really focusing on the, the keys of, a, of a retaining the companies you have expanding the companies that you have, and attracting new companies to the region. We have um, local and, and countywide uh, organizations that work in that area, but it's very hard in a rural area to get attention with thousands of other economic development groups for Galley County or Miggs County. Uh, but for when you start talking about the assets of the Appalachian region of Ohio, you have a lot you can market. And if you can get people interested, then um, then some of those opportunities are going to flow to the local communities as well. Well, all of them will uh, eventually. What was your first area um, in terms of gathering these assets and pulling the best of what this area has to offer and marketing that? Well, a lot of it was learning what people were already doing on the ground. So um, for the, the system that we have in Ohio now starts with a, a statewide nonprofit, Jobs Ohio, and their board of directors is made up of business people uh, who understand what it takes for business to succeed, working with regional organizations that are nonprofits and have boards that are made up of business people who then work with local economic development organizations. And you need every one of those levels. So the very first thing I did, in fact, my first week in the job, is went out to a meeting of a 100 or so economic development people, um, the staff working in them, the board members, some of the county commissioners and city council people and mayors, uh, and um, and had a discussion with them about what they saw on the ground that are, that's needed here. Um, it was pretty much what I expected and pretty much what happens in rural areas with some twists. So most rural of rural America, uh, we have issues of infrastructure. Uh, most of our water and sewer systems were put in in the 1930s as WPA projects with a 50-year design life, and we're still using them. 
Um, we have uh, issues with um, telecommunications infrastructure. We're in a broadband age, and a lot of our region doesn't have it. Uh, we have workforce issues. Um, many of our young people and our most skilled people have left the region looking for jobs during economic downturns and haven't come back, uh, would come back if there was a good job opportunity. And that's left us with an older than average population. So for most of the region, we have more people that are retiring every year than graduating from high school. So we really need to keep everybody that, come, you know, that leaves high school that is interested in a career here. Uh, and we need to make sure we prepare them for the jobs that are happening here. So we need workforce. We need places where we can do development that have water, sewer, broadband, road, railroad, natural gas, electricity. Um, and, um, you know, and we need strong local organizations to help identify those places uh, that we can do the work um, and can help prepare young people and people who are between jobs for the jobs that, that we're trying to attract and grow. So which comes first? It's like a chicken or the egg in terms of preparing the infrastructure or having the job so that can infuse the tax base that helps build up the infrastructure. You know, it's sort of got to be an all of the above approach. Um, you have to take what you have. Um, clearly, we've lost some businesses over the years. And uh, so we have some vacant buildings. Uh, we have some land that people have been uh, wise enough to, um, to invest in infrastructure and have ready for development. We have to market those. We're doing that. In fact, w now we have a problem that we're beginning to run out of those places. Um, you have to, at the same time, be you know, working with your educational institutions and others to make sure that you have people who are prepared for the jobs you're trying to attract. Um, and, and that has to be done very much at the same time that you're doing that. And then you can't ignore the companies you already have. When you look at economic growth, well, first of all, if you lose a job, you lose a job and it's hard to get it back. Second, if you've got a company in your area, um, that you're, you're four times as likely to grow that company as you are to attract a new company to the area. So 80 to 90% of the new jobs in rural areas happen by incremental or small projects growth of companies that are already there. Uh, but then you need that 20%, that 15 or 20% up to that are considering where they might want to go to create a new, uh, uh, to create a new venture to consider your area. And it's important to think about what are the assets of your area. And as you look at those assets, then think what are the companies that are a good fit with those assets and go out and market those assets to those companies. And we're trying to do that. Now, we've talked to quite a few different government leaders from Meigs County, from Gallia County, from Jackson County, uh, that talk a lot about job loss having to do with government mandates, causing them to you know, spend money they don't have, which means they can't spend it on economic development, attracting businesses, that kind of thing. So how much do you see government intervention or non-intervention affecting this area and how we can attract businesses and build that? That's a, that's a really great question. I mean, um, we've got regulations for a reason. Um, you know, we all want clean water to drink. We all want clean air to breathe. We want to make sure that, that our people are safe. There's a reason for that. Uh, at the same time, if you're a small company, and if you look at small companies, um, those that the SBA consider small business, all the job growth in America comes from small businesses. You take the b businesses with more than about 200 employees across the entire nation, as a net group, they are losing jobs. They're shedding jobs. They're becoming more efficient faster than they're growing. And, and so if we are going to create jobs for our people, our small companies have to succeed. Up to about 200 people, it is very hard for a company to have a professional department dedicated to all the regulations that we have out there, to have a full-time human resources department, to have people that are dedicated to the tasks of making sure you meet all the environmental regulations, um, the people that are, um, th that are tasked to making sure that you meet the regulations that go along with transportation or ha handling of hazardous materials. It's tough stuff. And the smaller the company, the more burden that is on their ability to operate. But we still need clean water, clean air. Uh, we need people to be safe. It's, it's a tough balancing act. And most of our regulations 
nationally are administered on a sort of one-size-fits-all basis. So the, the company that's got three employees that's trying to uh, and has, you know, a cup full of something that's hazardous a year has to deal with the same paperwork burden as the company with 10,000 employees that's creating tanker loads full of it. And that, that can be really hard on the small companies. If you look at the cost of regulation compared to the size of the company, a huge portion of small company effort goes into complying with regulations, and proportionally it drops off very much with size. Along the same line of Susan's question, the leaders that we're talking to, the local government leaders, are also talking about the fact that as local government leaders, their voices are not being heard or they have to, you know, be a squeaky wheel in order for lawmakers at the state level to take their perspective in when it, they co- when it comes to considering legislation or funding things, et cetera, that's very much focused sort of on the city areas, and they think that take that perspective, and they don't think about the impact or taking the rural perspective when formulating certain plans. And so then a lot of counties are left with unfunded mandates, et cetera, and that really hurts their bottom line and their ability to grow. What role do you see your organization or the discussion about that in the whole economic development conversation? Well, I mean, that, that is one of the, the, the fundamental issues that makes our, our work so interesting and ch- or challenging. So we have a great reliance on our local economic development organizations and our local communities and the capacities of their community to do our job. I can't, with a regional staff of 19, know all of the building sites, all of the companies across 14,000 square miles of Appalachian, Ohio. I can't do that. I have to rely on local partners. Those local partners have to find a way to pay for staff. Um, if they need infrastructure to, to uh, for business in the community, they have to find a way to finance that. Um, even if they can apply for a grant, there's always a requirement for matching funds, and they may not have the mechanism for coming up with that. If you're in one of our larger metro areas, you have um, – dedicated staff. You've got enough volume so you can have whole departments focused on issues that in a community like Jackson, you may have somebody that has to deal with part-time with 10 other duties. And so um, it, it can be very difficult for smaller communities to have the level of expertise that they need in order to really do everything they need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And so it's particularly a challenge when it comes to economic development right um, in Ohio because the, if you look around the country and you look at the areas that have the most successful rural economic development programs, they have something that's called, uh, excuse the technical term, a dedicated permissive source of revenue. And what that means is something, a tax, a fee, uh, could be an income tax, could be a property tax, could be a sales tax, it could be some sort of a, a fee on um, on industry, but it's dedicated then to be used exclusively for economic development in that rural area. Ohio has nothing like that. And so in challenging economic times, and we are in challenging times um, with the, the big um, economic crisis that we had in 2008, 2009, um, as we dealt with the state budget crisis, one of the big ways of balancing the budget was by reducing the amount from state government that went to local government that caused the local government to, to tighten their belt. Well, those local governments, if they are, they're challenged and they've got all these balls they have to balance, and some of them are really urgent and uh, really critical to all their constituencies. And some of them are going to make a long-term difference about whether or not their community is vibrant in the future, but they require an investment today. Well, if you've got people who are hurting and basic needs you can't meet, and you've got a choice between that and investing in that and investing in development, so people two or three or five years from now or 10 years from now have a job, you're going to pick the, lo- the short-term need. And so we don't have that dedicated source of funds that if you, tr- if you levy it, that tax or fee, that if you levy it must be used for economic development. So every dollar we spend on economic development in rural communities is a dollar we have to take away from something else critical. Um, if I had to make one change in state policy, it would be to do what our biggest competitors are do, like Texas. Uh, and that's have a, a, that kind of a source of funds. In Texas, it's sales tax. In Minnesota, 
It's a piece of property tax that if the local people vote for it, can't be used for anything else. Uh, to have something like that so that in good times and bad, we can support the development of the economy so everybody does better over time. Long game. Long game. Have you proposed that idea? Have you talked to lawmakers at, at, at different levels about that and heard feedback about the feasibility of, of, such, a, of such a thing? Or, or, or are people not receptive to that idea? Well, it's certainly something that resonates with our rural lawmakers, and I have talked to many of them about it. Um, it's going to take more than just our region, but we're fortunate that in Ohio, we aren't the only area with a lot of rural territory. Um, if you look in, across northern Ohio, uh, northwest Ohio, and even parts of northeast Ohio, there's a lot of rural territory. Even in central Ohio, when you get outside of Columbus, there's a lot of rural territory. So uh, I do think there's room to build the kind of legislative support to get that done. Um, it's hard to get the word out alone, but we're working on it a little bit at a time, and uh, we'll continue to work at it. It is so critical for our communities to have a source of funds. So they can have some money to match an infrastructure grant uh, so that they can have a place for development. So they can pay the staff time to have somebody who can work with business to understand their needs and help them get the resources they need to grow. We just, we need a way to pay for it. Um, we Currently we pay for it with the little bit we scrape out of the budgets of our local communities, and that's a tough sell. And, um, and partnership with local business community. Um, and we've got some really amazing efforts that, that are put together that way, but they are really working on a shoestring. And is there any connection to the local government fund with what you do uh, in terms of the government, local governments? Uh, APEG doesn't receive any local government fund support. So the Jobs Ohio model is one where Jobs Ohio paid the state $1.6 billion to lease the wholesale liquor enterprise. Um, and after making the bond payments on that, that provides a funding stream that helps support their work, and some of which then is under uh, that they contract with us to support our work in the region. Um, we also do a pretty significant amount of work with uh, companies to help them succeed here, mostly manufacturers and companies in the wood products industry. The work we do with manufacturing is supported through a combination state and federal grant program called Manufacturing Extension Partnership. The work we do with the forest products industry is supported through an SBA contract for what's called a regional innovation cluster. Gotcha. I was looking at the key industries for APEG and goes from polymers and chemicals to food, transportation, aerospace. Um, I noticed energy production is one of them. Um, talks everything from Marcellus Shale to solar and wind. Um, in, in this region, are we seeing a balance of trying to transition into uh, diversifying the energy production or are we seeing a focus on, you know, we have fracking in this area and we have coal production is being brought up a lot. What do we see in this area? So um, there is a transition going on. Let, let me say that our focus at APEG on energy isn't on the actual extraction of the energy or the production of the energy. It's on using that energy here rather than, which is a higher value use, rather than shipping it out of Ohio to be used somewhere else to build their economy. Hmm. So we have the lowest natural price natural gas in the industrialized world in eastern Ohio. And um, we have issues with a transmission system to use it, but we have huge opportunities for, for attracting companies that need low-cost energy that come out of that. Um, one of the big projects we've been working on with Jobs Ohio since 2011 is um, what's called an ethane cracker. Um, in Belmont a, County? In Belmont County. Um, that project would take the ethane that's mixed in with natural gas and turn it into ethylene, which is the feedstock for most of the chemical industry. It's a much lower polluting feedstock than oil is, which is what's used now because there isn't enough ethane around the world to, to meet all the demand. Um, and if we can do that, if we can use that ethane to turn it into ethylene to make things like polyethylene here, uh, we, we can bring uh, 40 times the investment and 20 times the jobs 
to this area compared to taking that ethane and putting it in a pipeline and shipping it to the Gulf of Mexico to be either refined there into, in, in, or to be shipped overseas to be used in overseas facilities. So our focus isn't on the production. We don't do anything with the wells. We don't do anything to, uh, with the drillers. Uh, what we do is we try to, if that activity is going to go on here, we want to capture the, the value of that here because our people need those jobs. Our economy needs the revenue that can come from using those products here in higher value ways. We do exactly the same thing with our trees. So we've got a big forest products initiative, um, but we've got a great hardwood forest in Ohio. It's some of the best hardwoods in the world. We ship half of what we cut, we ship out of Ohio as logs. Half of the, uh, the logs that we cut into timber here, we ship out of Ohio in the form of boards. Um, we have a tremendous opportunity to take that fine hardwood and do more here with it rather than shipping it to China to be turned into furniture to be shipped back to the U.S. or uh, shipping a low-value log uh, with high energy and transportation costs to the European Union to use higher-cost energy and higher-cost labor to turn it into a product there when maybe we can turn it into, let's say, flooring here, ship the flooring that that use uh, that higher value for the energy and transportation cost into the U Europe, uh, and actually um, uh, put the jobs back into our into our region from that resource, which is a bit of, I guess you said like you said a transition on what we've always known this area to be in, t in terms of a part of the extraction industry. Mm -hmm. You take it out, somebody else makes money off of it, and you're saying that there are ways for. It's still going to be extracted in some kind of way. That's still happening. But to reinvest or to make sure that there's money made or jobs to be had on the next level of that of the actual production. Exactly. And one of the things I love about doing that in the forest products industry is we currently harvest half as much timber in Ohio as grows annually. And we about a third of what grows ends up rotting in place because we don't manage our forests well enough to cut it when it needs to be cut to make a healthy forest. A younger forest is healthier for wildlife. It's healthier for the environment. So really the healthiest forests are the working forests where we get in and harvest things when they're ready to harvest and do that responsibly. But we're only doing half of the harvesting that we really need to be doing in Ohio to have a healthy, for, the, a healthy forest ecosystem. So we can actually improve our environment while doubling the amount of wood that we are able to make available to benefit the economy of our region. Um, that's a real win for us. And that's a win that trickles back. So the company that takes that wood and turns it into flooring makes some money. But then Beyond that, the company that, that, that saws that, that wood to be used by that company makes some money, and the company that trucks that to the various locations makes money, and the landowner makes more money, and, so, and the logger makes more money. So every dollar that we can uh, keep here higher up in the value chain flows back and benefits many, many, many people in Ohio. So it's a, it, it's a real win for the region if we can use that resource here. How do you do that and, and sort of also avoid or try and safeguard against that boom-bust cycle when it comes to things that are coming out of the extractive industries and that have historically hit this region hard? Well, and actually the, the strategy of trying to build more uses for the resource are exactly the antidote we need for the boom-bust cycle. So if we are using more of the resource here, then more of the economy is based on, uh, on, um, on things that don't go through those, those sort of extractive cycles. And so if, if, if we create, for instance, if the ethane cracker is built in Belmont County, that will be probably somewhere in a 5 to $9 billion investment. It would be the largest private sector investment ever made in Ohio. Um, it, um, the, the investors in that project are looking at a return over 20 to 30 years b based on the kind of financing that, the, that a project like that will get. That means what we're doing is we're creating a, a value proposition. We have to have a plan, or the company has to have a plan that convinces investors that for the next 20 to 30 years, uh, 
or beyond, and preferably beyond, that they will have a robust operation that provides income to pay those loans. Well, that re- that requires that company to stay here. It requires that company to pay taxes here. It requires that company to pay workers here. And it levels out the boom and bust. As far as the extraction goes, um, in the um, we, we certainly have the boom and bust cycles are are much bigger when you're taking something out of the ground or or cutting something to export it from your area, uh, because that company on the other end that's using it can shop around for wherever the lowest price source of supply is. And so um, by tying industry directly to the resource, you'll level out those peaks. You keep the activity going. Are there examples of, of that sort of situation model in other places that you've worked um, where the, it, it helps level it out? That You've seen that actually yeah, take place? Yeah, um, definitely. It, this is, um, this is a, what's called a value chain approach. Uh, it's something that... Uh, uh, Michael Porter um, has written a lot about um, and uh, that there are groups that are working on rural development across America are working on um, my work at the Aspen Institute. We worked at the Ford uh, Foundation and, and really smart organizations all around the country, some of them here in Athens County, actually. Um, rural Action here, AceNet here, both use um, what, what, what we now call a wealth creation value chain approach, which really takes the local resource and works on building more uses for that resource in the local economy that are tied to stronger markets. Um, Nash, both organizations nationally known for that work, and I was working with them from Aspen before I'd ever set foot in Athens. Um, so it was great to sort of come home to friends uh, here. The um, uh, so it, it's a it's a very widely used um, method. The it hasn't been used much at the scale that we're using it at here now. So m- most of it has been focused on very local economies. Uh, it's been uh, the food coming out of a very local area, um, the thirty mile meal, um, or um, you know uh, the tourism resource that might be because of a local cultural resource or something historical in an area. We're trying to apply the same principle to a much larger resource base, and we're having some success with it. Good example. Great story. So um, one of the things in the American economy right now that's going gangbusters in terms of uh, increased market is bourbon. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Hello. <laughs> yes. Well, I, um, bourbon has to be aged in a new white oak barrel, a uh, new American white oak barrel. We have in Appalachian, Ohio, Appalachian white oak, which is the best white oak in the world. And so in 2015, a company that we have a relationship with, um, Ohio Valley Veneer, worked with us. And we help them uh, through the process of putting in a barrel stave mill. You have to take the oak and saw it in a very particular way for it to be used in a barrel. And so they did that. And um, through some of their contacts in the industry with a company that refurbishes our bourbon barrels and sends them to Scotland to be used to make scotch in, um, they ran into a company from Scotland and France that was interested in putting a barrel cooperage somewhere in, um, in, in North America. In fact, they were thinking about potentially putting it in Kentucky. A lot of competition for the oak that's available in Kentucky. Um, got them interested um, in our area. And uh, about this time last year, uh, uh, early 2016, um, with, uh, with our support, Jobs Ohio's support, uh, the encouragement of the, the stave maker, uh, and, um, and a lot of work from the local people, we managed to t- uh, place that company in, the, uh, in an old cabinet factory in Jackson. Um, they, um, by uh, this fall, they hit their initial employment projections and their production product projections, 50 new workers. Um, and, uh, they've, uh, and they were making 200 barrels a day. They're now up to 400 barrels a day. They're adding another shift. They think they're going to get to 1,000 or 1,200 barrels a day. 
Um, you know, those barrels are not inexpensive. Uh, those are good jobs for the people who are working them. It's re-employed many people who've been using the same skills, working, making cabinets earlier. Um, great opportunity to take the resource and turn it into something that, um, that has a lot of value in the current marketplace. But when jobs come in, and are local workers benefiting from these? Yeah, no, local workers are benefiting. If you bring in a company, um, they may bring in some top management, um, and whether that's a U.S. company or an international company. Um, but the number one factor that a company looks for, other than is the, a specific location a good one for their markets, um, and sometimes even more than whether that's a good location for their markets is, are they going to be able from the local area to attract sufficient peop- a number of workers with the right mix of skills for them to be able to profit in that area? It's always one of the top two considerations, and it's usually number one. Um, we can't expect to bring a workforce into our region to meet the needs of companies. We have to be able to provide the workforce from here. Fortunately, in the, especially with manufacturing, we have a lot of qualified work, workers here. Um, we are a very unusual region in that the scale of manufacturing in this area. One out of every seven people in Appalachian, Ohio, works in manufacturing. In Ohio, it's one out of ten, so it's about a third less. Uh, that's the third highest rate, uh, man, largest manufacturing workforce in the U.S. Mm. So we are basically 50%. We have 50% more people working in manufacturing than, than Ohio, and Ohio's near the top of the list for the nation. Um, does that mean that there are a huge number in any one place in a rural county? No. But does that mean with the way that – what it does mean, though, with the way people work in rural areas, it's not unusual to drive 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 minutes an hour for a good job. Uh, you might do the same thing in a metropolitan area, but you're Just probably sitting in, traffic. Do, sitting in traffic doing it. <laughs> And so when you begin looking across the region, one of the things we haven't run into a big problem with is our companies being able to attract people for, for the jobs that they're offering um, if they're paying a reasonable wage. And, um, and our wages uh, in this region are low compared to the state and, and the Midwest, so companies can come in and offer a good wage for this region and still find an affordable workforce. So again, companies are able to attract workers, pay, do well by them for the region standards, do maybe a little better for them than the worker could have done before. Uh, and until we absorb our workforce, you know, we're not going to see the wages going up in general in large amounts across the region. Because that is uh, uh, one of my other questions throughout the conversation about bringing back manufacturing jobs and um, and the question of, well, are these the jobs like back 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago when they actually sustained a middle class. And so we are going to bring back manufacturing jobs. Is it on that level or, or, is, it, or is it not? It's like a good paying job or what does it mean to be reasonably well paid and how do we define that? What standard are we trying to reach when we say reasonably well paid? And then at a certain point, a job is a job. And so if we, with the poverty rate being what it is in this area, and so the unemployment rate goes hand in hand with that, there's not money changing hands. The idea that gain, being gainfully employed, ideally, I'm assuming that if full-time jobs come with health care benefits and those things, then um, that's a positive. If you look across various economic sectors in our society and you look at the sectors that we can reasonably expect to have a large number of jobs in in a rural area, we're not likely to, to, with the exception of university communities like Athens, we're not likely to attract a lot of biotech jobs. We're not likely to attract a lot of IT jobs. But if you look across service sectors and manufacturing and uh, agriculture and the various sectors where employment is of significant numbers of people is feasible in a rural area manufacturing by far and away provides the best jobs among any of those sectors and um, uh, as a sector as a whole 
So um, for the opportunities we have here in a rural place, manufacturing is going to provide the better jobs. This is, we are in a really different time when it comes to manufacturing. So in the 1970s, when we started exporting and manufacturing jobs, if you bought something in the store, and it was you know, a manufactured good of some kind, in general, across all goods, half the cost of that was labor. 15 cents out of every dollar was the energy to make it and get it to the customer. Today, that is more than reversed. The energy that it costs to make things and get they get them to customers, with the way the global uh, manufacturing community works, is more than half the cost. And labor, because we've gotten so much more productive, we have so many more automated machines, people are doing higher value work than they used to, the labor cost has shrunk as a percentage of that thing that you buy to, to, to under 15 cents. For what they call class one manufacturers, the really big companies, it's under 10 cents out of the dollar. So that means we've got a different equation. And the generation of managers that exported so many manufacturing jobs grew up at a time when the primary thing they taught you in business school is you have to squeeze labor cost out. But that's because it was half your cost. Today, what they're teaching in business schools and what the new generation of managers are looking at is where is the lowest total cost of operation for that when you consider everything from where your raw materials come from to where, where you're selling your product. In that whole uh, chain, where is the lowest cost place for you to operate? And labor is a very small part of that equation anymore. Energy is huge. And in eastern Ohio, with our natural gas resources, we have the lowest energy costs in the industrialized world right now. You cannot find energy any less expensive to use in your manufacturing pro uh, processes than you can here in Ohio. And that gives us a tremendous competitive advantage for a lot of things. Not everything. There are still going to be some products that they haven't found a way to automate. And they're still going to be made in places where people are getting paid $2 a day. Uh, but for the things that, um, that we can apply productivity technologies to, which means the worker is doing more interesting, more challenging work. They need to be better prepared to do that work, but they get paid more for that work. Um, we're very, very competitive here. Ohio overwhelmingly voted for the current administration, the federal administration, um, based on uh, among other things, but the jobs, the idea of of bringing jobs back to the area, at least that's what is being said. So in your position that is trying to convince uh, uh, manufacturers and, and business uh, creators and job creators to come to this area, how does the political climate play into how you do your job? Yeah, that, that's, um, that, that's a real question. Um, we, every time there's a, a presidential election year, activity in, on, on the economic development side, company decisions slow down. And they slow down because it, if you're going to invest for 10, 20, 30 years, uh, if you're going to spend millions of dollars of your own money and your investors' money, you want to understand the environment you're operating in. And there's always some uncertainty, which party is going to be elected, what are their policies going to be, are they going to favor my industry or somebody else, or my competitors. All of that comes into play. This year, um, when we started having non-traditional candidates arise on both sides, we started seeing more uncertainty enter the system, and we started to see companies beginning to hesitate to make investment decisions. And so our numbers of new jobs this year started going to, that, that, were, that were being pledged in our project started going down. But the number of companies we were working with kept going up because they weren't making decisions. Uh, when we got to the fall election, and that became even more pronounced for us. Um, we had uh, a very unusual mix of normally about two-thirds of the activity that we have, companies interested in investing here are American companies that want to, to operate here. But this last year or a year and a half or so, because there's been so much uncertainty in other world markets, we've had a real interest in international companies of investing here and creating jobs here, which is great for us. We love to see that happen. Um, in fact, 70% of the projects we were seeing there were international companies that were interested in potentially doing business in America. 
Well, almost all of those companies are, are assessing what this presidency may mean for them. And some of them will likely say, this is going to do great things for us. But some of them have already said, you know, we're putting all of our investment decisions related to the U.S. on hold, at least for the next year, because we just don't know whether we're going to see trade barriers, whether we're going to be able to have our critical staff get the visas that they need for us to be able to have the management in place, you know, to run run an operation. Um, I ran into that with a uh, European um, flooring company that I was uh, talking to. Um, we had arranged a call. We've been working up to this for a long time. We knew they wanted to put a hardwood flooring facility uh, somewhere in the U.S. that was a hardwood supply region to make flooring to ship back to Europe. And uh, they, that, that company, uh, in a call, said, you know, we've decided that there's too much political uncertainty right now. We are not going to make any investments outside of the EU until uh, we know more. It, definitely not in 2017. So uh, I'm still very hopeful that a little bit further down the road that company will make a positive decision. On the other hand, I've had colleagues in other regions, I have personally experienced this, who have said, you know, I've had a company that was planning on opening an auto supply plant in Mexico look at the current political situation and say, you know, the difference in cost wasn't so great. We're going to do it here just because we don't know if we're going to be able to import and we really need to meet our customers' needs. So it's at this point, it seems to be cutting in both directions, depending on the industry and the company and the specifics. One of the biggest projects that you've been talking about, and it sounds like maybe for, well, you said for Ohio with this, uh, with the ethane cracker, that's an international company, isn't mm-hmm. that? And what's the status of of that project? Well, that project is still um, – it, we're still very optimistic about it. Um, the company delayed their investment decision. I, In this particular circumstance, I have no reason to believe that it has anything specific to do, um, you know, with, with the, the fall election. The co- that company was on a very aggressive time schedule, and it's a very big project. And – you almost never hold to that kind of time schedule across the length of a project of this scale. So we had been really pleased to get up to February of this year without missing a step in that time schedule, but we never expected that the time schedule would keep throughout the whole project cycle. So now we're, instead of looking at a March or April investment decision, we're probably looking at a fall investment decision that's still well within the window of what we expected when we began working with the company years ago. So I'm not put off at all by the fact that we're looking at another six months before they're likely to make a decision. In fact, that may help in the long run because we have Shell building a very large facility in western Pennsylvania. And if we decrease the overlap in the construction periods, it's actually going to be a little bit easier for the companies to find the construction workforce they need to build these facilities. It it will take, at the peak, 10,000 workers at one time on that plant site working on constructing that facility. So um, it's, um, yeah, having two of those you know, within essentially the same commuting radius uh, for construction workers uh, is a bit much. Just something that I was curious about in talking about these ethane crackers, and we're talking about fracking and uh, all these different manufacturing things. Back, way back when, businesses invested in the education of their workers, and they paid you to go to school, essentially. Is that something that's coming back? Is that something that we're looking at doing because of all the transition in what, what businesses are doing and what businesses are coming? It's beginning to come back. Um, it's not fully back yet, clearly. Um, you know, one of the reasons that that changed um, is that when the baby boom generation hit the workforce in the 1970s, there simply weren't enough jobs. And so part of what we did to absorb that generation was invest a lot more in um, state resources uh, and federal resources in higher education um, versus working with companies uh, because the companies didn't have the positions to train people into uh, on that kind of scale. And so we started, we, we, we substituted the state and federal resources. Well, since they were there then, when we began to absorb the baby boomers, the company said, well, the government's already paying for this. Why should we? So we dismantled those partnerships in this country. 
Uh, most of our biggest international competitors have very well des- developed partnerships be- that are really uh, uh, public-private partnerships around the educational workforce for their for their industries. We really don't have that here. If we're going to remain competitive, we have to figure out how to do more of that. Uh, the work that we do with manufacturing extension is a bit a bit of a step in that direction. Um, but the other thing is, with our, the age structure of our workforce, we can't rely exclusively on pre-employment training anymore. So we have, across most of our region, as I said earlier, we have more people who are um, who are retiring than who are graduating from high school. So even if we train and place every one of those people graduating from high school, with the pace of technology change in industry, we can't train enough people fast enough before they get on the job to fill all those skilled positions that we need. We So we also, and we've been experimenting with and demonstrating a model for partnering with industry to take people who are already on the job, who the companies already know and trust, who they already believe can do that next job, and co-investing to move them into a higher skilled level position. We had a two-year demonstration grant from Department of Labor. And during that two years, we managed to train 1,200 people for higher level jobs in local manufacturing companies. Um, Every one of those people ended up in a better job than they were in. In almost every case, that opened their, their old job for a new hire. 1,200 new jobs, um, and the average cost of the training itself, not the program administration, but just the training was um, was about $600 per worker. That's one-tenth of what it costs typically to provide one year of training in pre-employment to move somebody into the workforce. And many of the pre-employment training pro- programs require two or more years of training. Uh, to get somebody ready to go to work. So it's a very cost-effective model. It opens entry-level positions for people who then can move up. Uh, We'd like to see more of that happen in Ohio, Um, and uh, we've proven it can work here. Um, Now we've got to convince the folks who, who pay for the programs to try something new on a larger scale. So is there anything we left out that... um that you think that folks who are not familiar with APEG should know about this? Would you call yourself a resource? Yeah, you could, you, we, we definitely are a resource. I mean, our mission at APEG is to foster enduring widely spread prosperity across Appalachian Ohio by working with a private sector business economy. And uh, it's, uh, it's an important mission. Um, the best social welfare program is a good job. You know, if you can put somebody in a good job, a lot of the other issues go away. I had a brief detour in my career about 30 years ago when um, uh, when there wasn't much work available in economic development. Uh, for five years, I ran a family counseling center. And, you know, what I found was that most of the time when I had a family that had pretty severe family stress going on, there was an employment issue there, too. And um, that's what got me looking at the issue of how does the health of families and the quality of the jobs they have available link, and the research is overwhelming. So if we can put more people to work in quality jobs with benefits, a lot of the things that we spend a lot of time and resources, a lot of our tax money on, will go away uh, or become less urgent um, can free money for other things that we that, that we desperately need to do, like improve our infrastructure in our society. Um, so, uh, you know, I, th- this is really good work to be doing. It makes a huge difference in people's lives. Uh, every Everyone on my team at APEG has a really deep commitment to making life better for the people who live here, especially the people who struggle most. So that's what we're about. When we come back, we're going to switch gears. We have an awesome responsibility to make sure that we're not simply filling bellies, but that we are nourishing bodies.
As agencies feeding the hungry focus on providing healthier food to the poor and elderly, President Donald Trump has proposed a 20% cut in federal funding for agriculture. As Mary Meehan from the Ohio Valley Resource reports, it's a move that advocates say is bad for people who need food and the farmers who supply it. To understand why folks are worried is to understand Appalachia's need for food programs. West Virginia University research shows 15% of people there are food insecure. Half the families enrolled in Head Start in Athens, Ohio, don't get regular meals. And in Kentucky, a food program called God's Pantry helps the one in six adults coping with hunger. Program director Danielle Bosart says it's unclear what specific food-related programs might be impacted by the budget. It's just the uncertainty of not knowing what's going to happen is just kind of scary. Rick Roberts and a team of red-shirted members of the Bluegrass Buckeyes sort donated items at God Pantry's massive Lexington warehouse. The fans and alumni of Ohio State University check expiration dates on baby food, stretch tape to repair packaging, and arrange canned goods. Development director Rebecca Wallace says feeding programs are under threat. At a moment, they are striving to provide better nutrition. This year we'll distribute right about 32 million pounds of food. That's a lot of food. And when you think about how much food we are putting onto the tables of low-income families, it also tells us we have an awesome responsibility to make sure that we're not simply filling bellies, but that we are nourishing bodies. The 2014 federal farm bill included the Food Insecurity Nutrition Incentive, or FINI. Through grants, it links local farmers to food stamp recipients. In Kentucky, it's called Double Dollars. Spend $10 in food stamps on healthy food and get a $10 voucher to double the buying power. At the Berea Farmer's Market, Andrea Moss, whose infant daughter Sabali is bundled against the wind, used the program for the first time. If you are a lower-income family, it doesn't mean that you have to shop at places with cheap and, like, awful produce. Ashton Wright is Lexington's food coordinator. She's leading the effort to take Double Dollars statewide, an expansion made possible through a million-dollar matching grant. The same thing is happening in Ohio, with research for a similar program ongoing in West Virginia. What's so exciting about these Double Dollars programs uh, is not only helping to encourage folks to eat better and make those healthy behavior changes, it's also directly supporting our local food and farm economy. So it's directly putting dollars uh, into the pockets of uh, farmers who oftentimes are struggling. Nationally, Finney will provide $100 million for healthy food through 2018. Beyond that, its future is unclear. A similar program serving the elderly, 12,000 people served just by God's Pantry, is at risk by proposed budget cuts. Can these tokens, are they only for the Berea, or can they also be used like at the Richmond? Berea Farmers Market Manager Margie Seltzer says cutting food to poor people hurts local farmers. If people believe in your local farm economy, you've got to believe in food stamps um, and, and support that. It's not clear if the president's proposed cuts will happen. Some members of Congress, including the head of the House Agriculture Committee, have already voiced opposition. When we come back, we'll talk with the reporter of that piece about the lessons she learned and how they might be applied to the 457 SEO. SEO. I'm Aaron Payne, and on the phone with us now is the reporter of the story you just heard, Mary Meehan. She is a reporter with the Ohio Valley Resource. She's stationed out of WEKU. Thanks for joining us, Mary. Glad to be here. Thanks. Hey, Mary. Hello. So we wanted to ask you a bit about the process in your composition of this story. What was the question you asked yourself to kind of kick off this story? Well, the the impetus was really a proposed uh, drastic cut to the agriculture department. So I started to think about what sort of on-the-ground impact m- might that have and which populations are most vulnerable. 
And I had heard through another OVR story about a program to provide fresh fruits and vegetables to elderly in eastern Kentucky. And I knew about some uh, farmer's markets that helped people who had food stamps uh, double their spending at farmer's markets for fresh vegetables. So I started looking into it from that angle. What were some of the things you encountered in this story that surprised you or, or maybe you didn't know about before? I guess I didn't understand um, how dependent these uh, small farmers markets are on this program. I think one out of $20 that is made at the Berea Farmers Market is made through the um, what they call the double dollars program. So I thought the impact on small farmers especially was uh, important for me to learn. And then also the fact that Kentucky and, and Ohio are just at the verge of spreading these programs uh, across the state. So that has a pretty far-reaching impact for a lot of people who are living, you know, at poverty or the working poor. And did you find that there was a uniqueness in the the areas that you studied when it comes to these kinds of programs and, and the need for these kinds of programs? I think there's a pretty widespread need for them. And I think what really interested me, too, is that um, people who provide food commodities, essentially, for a long time have not been able to provide fresh food because the nature of the beast is that you get canned goods and and government subsidies that are not always the healthiest option. So that this proposed cut in the agriculture budget came at a time when those people trying to provide food were essentially upping their game to provide fresh fruits and vegetables, which are really something that can change the health of a community if it becomes widely available and and the program is well used. Mary, this is Atish. I was really interested to, and I was really struck by this idea about obesity and nutrition and um, the idea of you can still be um, food insecure, be malnourished, even though there are higher rates of obesity. In the, so you may appear to be getting, for that, getting a lot of food, but you, there are, but it's not necessarily nutrient-rich food. Was that a surprise for you to find sort of that? And how do we, how does that work with sort of our conception of how we tackle and to find people who are in need of food assistance and what kind of assistance they get or traditionally have been getting, and is that model or perspective changing? I think it, it wasn't a surprise to me that there was a lot of people who were obese that were both that were food insecure. I think um, I think it is a visual that really has to be um, explored and to a wider audience that's outside of the region in particular, or maybe even still within the region. Because as you said, obesity can actually be a a signal of malnutrition Um, because people are spending their money on uh, foods that are empty of nutrients like you mentioned, while um, other healthier foods may be hard to access at all or may be perceived to be too expensive. So um, it is a perception challenge, I think. But I think if you look at poverty levels and obesity levels, and food insecurity across the board, you'll find that those numbers are pretty similar. And do the food assistance programs that we have now and the assistance that we try and give those people that are food insecure, is it really geared towards getting people the nutrient-rich and dense foods that they, they need, or is it just sort of money being thrown at the problem and then not really thinking about how that money is spent or um, how people are consuming the what kind of calories they're getting through the I think it's evolved yeah I, I think it's I think it's evolved over the the years that I've been covering health in Kentucky which has been about 15 focused on health in particular so I think that it, it is evolving and the growth of these programs that provide access to fresh fruits and vegetables are part of that I think at, at, at some point in the in the past uh, food programs were based on getting people food and so if you go in to get a basic emergency pack from a food from a local food pantry, you know, you might get beans and some peanut butter and, um, you know, it's not anything that's going to help you count calories or lose weight. <clears throat> but I think, I think the, the growth of these programs shows that that's changing. 
Um, and so w- when you did this story, did you look at uh, areas are outside of Appalachia to see, you know, the differences between the programs that they're doing and the differences between those that are food insecure and, and how many there are? Did you see a difference in what people are doing and uh, how much of a need there is? Um, I did a sort of a broad search, but I focused pretty closely on the region. There, there are, for example, there are similar problems with obesity and food insecurity in some uh, Native American parts of the country, and there are also similar problems um, in some parts of Nevada. I'm not quite sure why, and in some parts of the South. So it's not a it's not a unique problem that uh, that food insecurity is matched by high rates of obesity and poor health. Um, Mary, one of the uh, quotes that struck me is that if you believe in the local farm economy, you've got to believe in food stamps. And um, and so you talked about that in terms of how the uh, farm, uh, the local farmers uh, benefit from having maybe, as I say, food stamp recipients or um, benefit from the federal programs. But what if you see, are the states pushing in any way? Because here in Ohio, um, Ohio also has uh, women, the, the WIC vouchers, the WIC value vouchers, you can use those at, food, at um, farmer's markets. But I noticed that that's not the case in Kentucky or West Virginia. While they all have kind of farmer's market uh, programs, uh, the farmers market nutrition programs and ways to pay in, but not, not necessarily on a deeper level where you can use a WIC voucher. Um, do you see any push from West Virginia and Kentucky to um, open up the the avenues to uh, to fresh food and from local markets? Um, I I did not see that in particular. I think their focus is on this particular piece of the pie right now. Um, it has its origins in Lexington, which has a pretty thriving farmer's market and introduced this program several years ago. So it's sort of going from the city out into more rural regions. Um, and still the challenge, even with those food, with the farmer's markets, uh, is also one of transportation as well. So how do people even get to the place where they can spend those dollars, which is a challenge, too. So it's, it's a pretty complicated issue. Uh, you mentioned that the Double Dollars program is about to spread throughout Kentucky and Ohio. Uh, I'm not sure if it'll go by a different name in Ohio or not, but can you just kind of uh, explain what, what the state of the program is in Ohio? Well, there are a number of individual farmers markets and communities that have this kind of program that um, amplifies the amount of money from food stamps that can be spent on fresh fruits and vegetables. So there's there's a, a, a handful of those programs already in place. And so what this broader network would do would to build on the strength of those programs and and start to spread spread it out across the entire state. And when it spreads, what what does that look like? What what goes into that? Exactly. Um, I think it's probably going to be some um, sort of the big business uh, benefits of you amplify your marketing, you'd um, learn from the people who do it the best, uh, you would be able to reach out to the to people who could use the program through a broader network. So I think that, that would be the benefit of it. Uh, if there was a community in Southeast Ohio that wanted to bring this program to uh, their area? How would, is there a way they could reach out to, to do that? Yeah, they could, um, they could contact the people in Lexington at the Double Dollars um, who are heading the statewide effort there, and they could put them in touch with the proper officials in their state. All right. Um, there are some farmers markets in northern Ohio that yeah. are that are participating, so it's a matter of uh, bringing it down. Yeah, (laughs) trickling down. Mary, your initial uh, impetus for this story was sort of uh, the budget, uh, President Trump's budget proposed proposed budget. Um, 
and we're still sort of in that process. But in terms of funding for programs that you're talking about in your story, what's the how do you gauge the reaction to in that budget fight? Are 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 is it are people stepping up to defend these programs and to, and to give a voice to how important they are and why they need to to stay funded? Yeah, they, they people are gearing up to fight back for these programs, and so you're seeing. Um, you're seeing uh, farmers in Kentucky. It's the Farmers Coalition that's starting to get behind it. There are a lot of farm-to-table efforts in local communities that they're trying to reach out to. So um, they are not going to—they're not going to go quietly with this um, because it does have a benefit to both people who are food insecure, people who need food, and small farmers who can help provide it. So it's—it's it's a pretty good constitu- constituency to make a case that they should continue. Mary Meehan, she's a reporter with WEKU and the Ohio Valley Resource, and it's her first time on the 457 SEO, so thanks for joining us. (laughs) You're welcome. I hope there'll be a second. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, again, thank you for your time. Thanks, Mary. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mary. We appreciate it. And that's another edition of the 457 SEO. Thanks to our guests for this edition, John Molinero and Mary Meehan. Our music was done by Nathan McGuire, producer behind the glasses, Adam Rich. Adam. Adam. Aaron does the mixing. 457 SEO is recorded in WOUB Public Media's Telemix Studios. You can find our podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and our website, woub.org slash listen. You can subscribe. Give us those five stars, please. Uh, That helps other people find us. You can write a review. Just please keep it constructive. We like to learn. It only makes the show better if you provide constructive criticism. And we'll give you a shout-out. Right. We love to love you. We give away shout-outs. All right. (laughs) And that's all we got for this edition, so we'll see you next time. I'm Susan Tebbin. I'm Allison Hunter. I'm Atish Baidya. And I'm Aaron Payne. Thanks. Bye. reading the description of that replacement for Nedia and it's called dad oh yeah hey, dad yeah oh god and then like in the in the description it's like dad is built for speed and reliability <laughs> dad speaks many different <laughs> languages mm. hey dad that's hilarious we go back to our first one right hey dad